Hey guys, I'm extra super excited for our guest this week. We have the one and only Dr. Cornell West on the program, so cannot wait to hear from him. Um, it's going to be amazing. I'm stoked. I mean, this guy is, uh, he's really something special. And uh, I, we keep raising the bar. I mean, the fact that we talked to Noam Chomsky a while ago, I mean, that's like, you know, intellectual hero of mine. And now Cornell West, same yeah. thing. Big yeah. intellectual hero of mine. I don't know if I've ever done a story on Cornell West on Secular Talk where I was against him. I think every I've I've covered stories with Chomsky where I was like, nah, he's wrong on this one. I don't think that's ever been the case with Cornell West. He's just amazing. He's also just a genuinely like wonderful human being. Oh, no question. That even the people who vehemently disagree with him on things and have very different political perspectives than we do, like, you can't help but like this guy because he's just so full of love. Yeah, except for that one guy that was on Fox News. Remember mm, that? The black yeah, guy who was, like, screaming looking, at him. Just looking to be a jerk. Yeah. Fuck that guy. I don't even know his name, but fuck <laughs> that guy who yelled at Cornell West on Fox News. Like, yelling at Cornell West? I know. The guy's lovely. I know. It's ridiculous. I actually want to ask him a little bit about, like, going on Fox News and what he thinks about that and his, like, sort oh, of... We know his philosophy. That. His yeah. philosophy is, like, our philosophy on Yeah, that. you yeah. reach out to everybody you can and you make the case yeah. wherever you can possibly make it. Well, what would be interesting is asking about that exact interview mm -hmm. with that guy who's clearly a giant prick. Yes. You know? Indeed. Um, all right. So a few things we want to do touch on first. This was interesting. There's new polling out. Of course, we've had 100 days of Biden mm -hmm. in office. We've also had 100 days of Trump out of office. Mm -hmm. And it looks like even though I do not on principle support Twitter banning him, mm -hmm. it looks like deplatforming him has actually really worked. Um, his support has significantly fallen in terms of his approval rating. He now stands at just 32% favorable, 55% unfavorable. That's down from even in January, which was, of course, the time of the riots, and he was all in on Stop the Steal, doing all kinds of terrible stuff. At that point, he had 40% favorable, 53% unfavorable. And also, this is noteworthy. So, you know, the story of the Trump-era Republican Party has always been that, like, the base is more committed to him than they actually are to the Republican Party. This was the first poll where that dynamic had flipped. 44% of Republicans said they're more supporters of Trump than the GOP, and 50% said they're actually more supporters of the GOP than the former president. That's the first time since he's been in office that it's been the case that more people said that they were into the GOP above him versus versus the other way around. So that's the first time since 2016? That's my that understanding. That's whoa, yes. whoa, that's huge, first, actually. Oh, no, sorry. First time since July 2019 when but party that, but, okay. found out number of Trump supporters in our poll. But that might be the first time they actually asked the question was 2019. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they came up with that in 2016. Yeah, because that was kind of a new, like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. of how he'd taken over the party. That's a good, okay. that's, I so, don't know. But anyway, interesting nonetheless. So here's my question for you. Do you think this is rock bottom for Trump mm. and he's just going to, like, stay at this number? Do you think he's going to bounce back or do you think he's going to go lower? Those are the only three possibilities. Which one do you think is going to happen? I have to think that 32% favorable is about as low as he can go. But what could change is like today, I would bet that those 32% favorable are still really into him. Like sure, really yeah. like mm -hmm. diehard support. They still got the flags up. They're mm -hmm. still like, he's really my president in my heart and soul. That like fervor around him could fade over time. And really look, 
Most of what Trump said in his 2016 campaign was total and utter bullshit. And instead of doing any of the, you know, things that the base claimed policy wise that he they wanted him to do, he didn't do any of those things. He just carried water for corporations, as we know. The one thing that he made good on was like his promise to own the libs and make everybody like freak out and clutch their pearls and rend their garments and all of that. And so what's funny to me is that even though you would endlessly have reporters talking to voters who were like, I just wish he'd put down the phone. Like, I think he's doing a great job. I just wish he'd get off of Twitter. The truth is, Twitter was actually what they loved about him because they loved that bombastic in your face, like owning the libs every day was actually what they signed up for. And so now that he's not there and he's kind of fallen out of the conversation in a way that is frankly pretty surprising to me, that part of his personality that they so responded to is no longer there for them. I like what Trump said about how now he does these official like office of the former president of the United States press releases. Mm. And he said... I like this a lot better than Twitter because it's more elegant. More so elegant. He's trying to like rationalize the fact that he's kicked off of Twitter and he's like, I'm doing better now. I don't even I don't even miss it. I don't even know what you guys are talking about. But here's another question for you. Okay. What would have happened to his numbers if he wasn't deplatformed? I think he would have stayed more or less at the forty percent where he was in January. See, that's interesting. I don't know. I also don't know to my other question, is this rock bottom for him? Is he going to go lower or is he going to bounce back? Because it's just too hard to predict with him. He's too hard to predict. But uh, I do have one theory. That what's your I, guess, though? What's my guess about yeah. which one? About whether he can sink lower, whether this is rock bottom. I think I think he has the ability to get to like 25% favorability. Yeah, because and I'm I'm doing that based off of Bush's low when he left office was 22%. And I think Trump has some more hardcore ride or die people, but only like 3% more. I, I also think, it's... think politics is actually a little more tribal now than it was when Bush left office. So there are certain people that just like you're not it doesn't matter what so, he does, they're not changing their mind. You actually just swayed me. I would say 30% is his rock bottom. Yeah. Or maybe so maybe at, or maybe 29 so is his rock bottom. 32% favorable. Right. That's pretty close to No, no, the 3% matters. Do. No, it would be that you know, that is a drop. I consider that a pretty significant drop. But one theory of mine has been really verified now. Remember when in 2016 when it was the Republican primary and Trump threw a tantrum because one of the people who was going to be asking questions was unfair to him. I think it was like Megyn Kelly or something. So he's like, I'm not going to go to the debate because oh, they're yeah. really unfair to me. Yeah. And like, first of all, I love how he spun that as if it was macho. And that's like the biggest snowflake bitch ass move you could do. He's like, I don't even want to show up because they'll ask me tough questions. So but I said at the time, I think it's a big mistake that Trump is doing this. And the reason why is he's a bullshitter. And in order for the bullshitter to succeed, he needs to constantly be in front of you to bullshit you. Right. And that's the exact logic of what's going on right now with him not being on Twitter, is that the bullshit doesn't have the opportunity to bullshit people anymore. The bullshitter can't bullshit people anymore. Yeah. And so now people are like, they just sort of lose interest completely. Right. Well, there's something with this particular type of narcissist where they almost like cast a spell on people, create a whole right. alternative mm -hmm. like reality yep. that as long as they're there to continue spinning the narrative, 
people continue to buy into it. Yeah, or people are just like, eh, kind of, I see it. Yeah, I see your point. Yeah. Right. And so when you don't have that daily dose of like recreation yep. of the alternative reality and the casting of the spell and the continuing of keep, keeping, keeping people in that space, yeah, the spell kind of wears yeah, off. Yeah, spell and, breaks. You know, the, the bloom is off the rose, so to speak. Now, here's the other question. Mm -hmm. First of all, I do want to know whether you think that he is going to run for president again. But putting that aside, if he does run for president again and he's back in the media every day doing his thing, making everybody go crazy and everybody gets all outraged again and covering his every move once again, do you think he pops back up to that 40 some percent? I don't know the answer to that question, but I do think if he runs again, he'll win the Republican primary. Yeah, but he could win the Republican primary with. 37%, 34%. You know what, I, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like you could be so fractured that that's all he needs. Yeah. You know? I, I think he would do better than that. I mean, I think he you would. Do. I, I do. I think he would solidly win a majority. I mean, he's won one. Majority's he's a lot. He's got, Crystal, you know, majority's a lot. If there's like eight people in the race, you're going to get over 50%. But I don't even think you would end up with eight people in the race. Oh, you don't? I think, you think he would like more or less clear Three or four people. Because you've already got, I mean, Nikki Haley, like all these people have already basically come out and said... If he runs, I'm not going to run. Oh, I didn't know that they said that. I had no idea. Yeah. So I think a lot of people who are posturing right now about 2024, they're playing the if he doesn't run, then I'll get in because that's a general recognition that, look, if he runs, he's going to end up being the nominee. So why waste our time? Um, so I actually think to answer my own question, since you dodged my question, what did I, how did I dodge it? Um, I think if he was back in the public sphere and back making everybody crazy again, I think he would pop right up back to where he was during his presidency, that 40 some percent favorability rating, because he is such a, he's so good at polarizing everybody and making it like you're with me or you're against me. And because people are so sort of hardened in their sectarian, tribal, partisan loyalties, I do think that if he was back in the news every single day, then he would pop back up to that rating, which goes to show you from the beginning how much the media gave him his power. Right. Oh, totally. How yeah. much their interest, their like initial it was initially it was just this like sick fest carnival barker type mm -hmm. fascination when they didn't think he could win whatsoever and yeah. they completely overcovered him. Like that's what gave him the platform to be able to do what he ultimately did. You know that when he won, his approval rating was only forty two percent when he won in twenty sixteen. That is wild. It's wild. Pathetic. And yeah, I mean and Hillary lost, and I think her approval rating was actually a little higher. Oh, but it wasn't her fault, Kyle. Uh, it, it was, was Russia, Russia and Comey and sexism, sexism and 87 million other yeah, things. Yeah, it was Bernie didn't do um, enough rallies for her. That was really the problem. Of course. <laughs> but do you think, so here's another interesting part to this. Like, so some numbers from this same poll, apparently Biden's favorable rating is 50%. His negative is only 36%. Do you think Biden changed the game a little bit in that now... You know, the sort of like inoffensive grandpa yeah. who just mumbles nice things and only delivers on like 10% of them. Yeah. Like, but isn't that <laughs> after the era of Trump, is it, doesn't that sort of tap into a mood in the country? Yes, I think so. There's a theory of presidential politics that's like you swing back and forth. Whatever you had this time, you want the polar opposite next time. I think Biden fits into that mold. So... Whereas Trump, the people who support him fucking love that guy. And the people that hate him fucking hate that guy. Biden's Biden, just like, man. All the way around, people are like, 
he's he's fine. Mm, whatever. You know, like no one's like, oh my god, yeah. I love Joe Biden. But they're like, yeah, he's doing a good job. He's fine. Yeah. Sure, he's mm-hmm. doing a good job. And on the other side, Republicans are finding it very hard. I mean, they basically have already given up on trying to demonize him in the way that they very successfully did with Barack Obama. And I think it's very frustrating them. Ted Cruz was on. They're after flailing him. so hard. It's so hilarious. It's pathetic. It's like so Ted sad. Cruz was on with Sean Hannity after Biden's speech, and he was like, "Well, he's boring, but he's radical." Radical. And it's just, it's not working, guys. It's like, not working. You tried this throughout his entire campaign. You keep trying it. You keep trying to pretend like he's some radical socialist redistribution, et cetera, et cetera. No one is buying that that guy is any kind of radical. And look, you play the hand that you've been dealt. Joe Biden at this point is not the most dynamic personality out there. And so their strategy of just basically like, look, we're not going to say a lot. Yeah, basement strategy. Hot him in the basement. We're going to continue the basement strategy that worked for him to get him into the White House. Again, polar opposite of Trump. We're going to all these stupid culture war battles that are flaring up online. We're either not going to say shit about them or we're going to immediately deflate them Mm -hmm. like they did. You know, there was this nascent freak out over vaccine passports. They um, immediately come out and we're like, we're not doing that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Meat freak out over Biden is going to get rid of meat. Right. They just immediately deflate. (laughs) Biden's going to get rid of meat. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Tucker was starting to get everybody whipped up into a frenzy over like the Democrats want you to wear masks outside forever and it's evil and we need to rip the masks off their faces and call CPS on their kid, whatever. And immediately the next day, he's like, you don't have to wear a mask outside. So it just completely deflates all these things that they start to try to get themselves worked up into a frenzy over. They just kind of immediately pop the balloon. Tucker's a lot dumber than I thought. He really <laughs> that is. That's a really dumb the whole oh thing. Oh, my God. The whole, it should be illegal. It's child abuse to wear a mask out. Well, like, shut the fuck. People being slightly overcautious in a fucking pandemic okay. is not a big deal. Well, he compared it to smoking a cigarette uh, on an elevator. Ridiculous. Well, <laughs> and it's also, I mean, here's my thing, too, is like, I'm with you on, there was a lot of annoying theater. liberal obsession COVID over, theater. yeah and also a lot of judgment like sneering judgment right. mm-hmm. of people who weren't double masking and who mm-hmm. are making different choices in their life and in fauci we trust right that's and stupid shit i didn't like that Me but either. then when you come in and do the other thing look if people want to wear a fucking mask outside who cares who it gives a matter. shit i like actually wearing the mask in certain circumstances in winter i love it i love it, it keeps me winter. warm I like the anonymity of it. And so, like, who cares if they're wearing it, if they're she not wearing She gets recognized it. everywhere, folks, just no, so you know. She has it's, to hide her face. I'm not even saying that. I'm just saying. Like, I am saying that. I like to be <laughs> unnoticed on the street is a nice feeling, yeah. actually. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, yeah. people catcall me all the time, so I like to cover. Yeah. Because I, I people always comment really, on my voluptuous lips really and they say, from. man, you're sexy. And I'm like, stop, please. <laughs> I'm trying to be modest over the here. struggle is real for you, Kyle. Um. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, Supreme Court thing. Do you have the Supreme Court thing in front of you? I've got the details. Okay. So this is interesting to me. This this is very interesting. So Supreme Court this Wednesday heard arguments in a case over free speech on high school campuses. So Mm -hmm. basically what happened is um, high school girl, she got put on the JV cheerleading team when she really wanted to be on the varsity cheerleading mm-hmm. team. So she and her national friend, scandal. She and her friend, I think they were at a convenience store or something, not on the the high school campus. And she said, "Hold on, let me find the exact. I want to get the exact words here. Uh, where is it? Where are the words?" She said, "Fuck school. Fuck softball. Fuck cheer. Fuck everything." On Snapchat. They posted a picture of herself and a friend, middle fingers raised. 
in response, the school somehow get caught, catches wind of this. Some somebody snitched. Somebody sent it to some authority figure yeah, at the which, school. What the fuck are you doing? I, mean, I know that's just so obnoxious. Anyway, so some kid, but they're kids. They do dumb shit, right? That's, mm-hmm. Kids do dumb shit. We all did dumb shit when we were kids. I wouldn't even say that's dumb, but go on. Well, um, yeah. So yeah. anyway, okay. Regardless of whether you think that this was yeah. that her doing this was dumb or that the kid reporting her was dumb, the school suspends her from the cheerleading squad for a year. The student and her parents sue and now over free speech concerns, saying that her free speech rights were violated by punishing her for what she said off campus, mm-hmm. right, on Snapchat in right. a private conversation. And um, that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, so hold on one second, just to clarify, because I thought I read uh, something that said it wasn't just suspension from the cheerleading squad, but it was suspension or being expelled from school. Did you see that in any of the articles or no? No. Okay. So, so at least it's just in, the cheerleading in squad? In this article, it's just about the uh, cheerleading squad. Okay. And I'm re- this is uh, the hill that I'm that I'm looking at right now. Shameless plug. Look at this one over here. Really? Uh, this is. I have something here from source, by Secular the way. Talk, the Kyle Kalinske show. <laughs> Go subscribe on YouTube now. <laughs> Very sketchy news source, I might say. But um, <laughs> yeah, so it looks like she was just taken off of the cheerleading squad for a year. But they're arguing that... And so the school's argument was that the teen had waived her First Amendment rights when she joined the cheerleading squad. What? <laughs> that doesn't make That's any sense. a well-known contract when you join a cheerleading squad. You're not allowed to bear arms anymore, and you're not allowed to speak your mind. <laughs> a federal court in Pennsylvania sided with the student, saying this was an infringement right. of mm-hmm. her rights to free speech. And so now this has gone up to the Supreme Court. And I guess the... Um, the sort of precedent that was set in this case before was from a, a 1969 yes. decision called Tinker versus Des Moines That's Independent right. Community School mm-hmm. District. And they basically said... You don't leave your rights at the school door. Exactly. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. But if what you say somehow interferes with school operations, that's a different matter. Yeah, so if you get up in the middle of a teacher teaching and you get up and you start, you know, singing really loudly and doing a little dance, you can't say, I have free speech rights to do this. I'm like, no, you're getting in the way of the class, so you don't actually have free speech rights to do that. Yeah, and even, I mean, it's hard for me to think of exactly what the theoretical example would be where what you're doing off campus affects the operations of school on campus in a way that's not already illegal, like a threat, a threat or something <laughs> Doxing like that. a teacher or some shit. But yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can imagine a case like that. But in this instance, like what she said it was more or less harmless. So you're actually burying the lead, the part that I think is most interesting, which is that um, in one of the articles I read on this, it appeared like Kavanaugh, who's a colossal piece of shit, mm. was like... <laughs> He's just a kid blowing off steam. This is no big deal. Yeah. And Elena Kagan, who I would normally agree with on stuff, was saying making a point in the opposite direction. Basically saying like, well, you know, the school should have the right to discipline the kid if they want to discipline the kid. And so there's this weird reversal when it comes to this issue of freedom of speech. Because if you look at case law uh, going back in the U.S., there was it's like unanimity. It's almost always nine zero when it comes to free speech things. Mm. There's the very famous uh, Antonin Scalia quote, which I just brain farted on and forget um, <laughs> and forgot. But yeah, Antonin Scalia had this very famous quote about how like this. Oh, it's that he doesn't. I'm going to paraphrase. But like he doesn't personally like burning the flag. Yes. But I don't have the ability 
And the government doesn't have the ability to ban that because that is, of course, free speech. Of course, that's political speech. Of course, it's demonstrating dissatisfaction with the government, which is right in line with the First Amendment. Yeah. So there's always this like, you know, usually the left and the right are aligned on this issue. But now we're seeing something that interestingly reflects some of the national discourse. Right. And political dialogue, which is that you do have this trend of some people on the left. Who are more, you know, leaning a little authoritarian on, on some of these issues. Yeah, circumspect about, hey, maybe we should rein in what constitutes free speech, essentially. And look, we don't know which way any of these justices are going to rule. So what we're talking you want about. want a prediction? Um, I mean, I think they're going to find in favor of the kid, ultimately. I think and so, too. In part yeah. because it is a very conservative dominated court. Um, and because the precedent here seems fairly clear, but look, I'm no constitutional or Supreme Court expert here. But just to be clear, I mean, we don't know for for a fact which way any of the justices are leaning. We're just reading into the tea leaves. Of well, the no, reading of into their questions. Yeah. Of the type of questions yeah. that they were asking. Um, John Roberts got into what is kind of the essential question here. He says, look, the sharp line you're trying to draw between on campus and off campus. How does that fit with my modern technology? I mean, it's a text or a snap that you send from the park and it's read in the cafeteria. Is that off campus or on campus? So that's the other. That's why they're taking this up and kind of reconsidering, because obviously in 1969, when this other decision was made, there was no Snapchat. There were no mm -hmm. iPhones. There wasn't this same confusion about what's on campus and off campus. So they're kind of deciding whether this is a good case to set a new precedent for how to handle that modern technology. Yeah. Listen, I'm strongly on the side of don't punish her. I mean, again, I think it should be a really firm rule that if it's off campus, there's just zero ability to punish him. Zero. Well, and what she said was also... Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is no some big deal. This is some bullshit. Somebody's a prude with a stick up their ass. Oh, gosh, golly, the F word. Oh, my <laughs> children would never. I would never. That's what that is. Yeah. And it's like, relax. I think Kavanaugh is right when he's like, she's just blowing off steam. She's pissed she didn't make varsity. So she's like, fuck everything. Well, here's, okay. Here's the other part of it that I think is is troubling. It's like kids have no privacy anymore to like fuck up and move forward like everything they do like is, say they tweeted something in 2011 that sticks with them the rest example, of their life yeah. and then mm -hmm. maybe somebody starts an account that's just those old tweets which in itself gets like a hundred thousand followers for as one potential uh, example uh, it's ridiculous um, <laughs> that would never happen or like say <laughs> you went to a party when you were just down in college and took some sort of like provocative pictures that reemerge yeah. when you're running for public office but that would never happen. That would never. Yeah, I mean, that's a really hypothetical, theoretical example. <laughs> but now, I mean, from the moment that they get a phone or online or whatever, all of this is being tracked mm -hmm. and it can haunt you for your entire life but and it can be used against you. So there is no like private moment of blowing off steam. It's See, recorded electronically to be surveilled and used against you and ban you from the cheerleading squad and all that's of right. that crap. But see, now you're further making the point that I... I've always believed this strongly, which is everybody should, anytime somebody tries to make a big deal out of some shit from a while ago where somebody's being edgy or controversial or, you know, having a bad moment, yeah. everybody should across the board be like, fuck off. I don't care if you're offended by it. I don't care if you don't like it. It's totally irrelevant. I said it then. I'd fucking say it again. Fuck off with all this like nitpicking and finding things to be, you know, offended by and outraged by. I just nobody should give a 
fuck in a world where we're where we have eight wars going on and 80 percent of the country lives paycheck to paycheck and that we have 500,000 people at least who are homeless and the list goes on and on of all these serious systemic problems we're dealing with infrastructure falling apart gets a grade of c minus if you care about this shit fix your fucking moral outrage meter because it's broken right well and so much of the outrage is fake totally number one yeah Number two, it's about power for the person who is feigning the outrage. Yes, exactly. Right, building their own clout, mm-hmm. making them feel— I'm it, a good person and you're a bad person. Well, and not only that, but f- making them feel in a society where people are largely powerless and impotent to actually, like, meaningfully, mm-hmm. you know, effectuate change and all these things. This is a way of feeling like you have some control over right. some other person or situation. So and then but to your point, it also really distracts from those bigger systemic issues and makes it in a conservative way. This very like it's your personal responsibility to do this. Very pure. And that you're that you it it takes it from the collective to the individual is Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say, which is actually a very conservative type thing to do. Look, if people say fucked up racist things, then by all means, and and you're offended, but like, it's okay to voice that outrage. That's 100% like, makes sense, acceptable. There are some things that I would consider to be over the line, all of that. But this has gotten so out of whack. So much of it is so incredibly performative. There's no path to any sort of redemption. And and by the way, like this is now I'm way beyond the Supreme Court because this girl doesn't need any redemption or like educational right. learning or whatever. Like what she said is no big deal whatsoever. But in cases that are more extreme and way over the line, there's no desire to bring this person along. It's just a desire to like shame, cancel and prove that you are a superior being. But there's so also it's not actually about moving things forward. True. And there's also just no room for edginess and stupidity. Like you, everything is like, you know, you judgment is cast immediately. And mm-hmm. I, you know what I'm reminded of? I don't know why this just popped in my head, but I think you think it's hilarious. Cenk Uygur admitted the most, one of the most embarrassing things I've ever heard, which is that until he was like in his twenties or some shit, he didn't believe in mold. Mold. He thought mold was like, like, oh, it's all in your head. Get over it. It's not... <laughs> exactly. But like. There needs to be room in the world for people to be fucking idiots. Yeah. And sometimes people say idiotic shit. Sometimes you float theories where you look like a colossal moron. Sometimes you try an edgy joke and you fail. Everyone on the planet has said something that was stupid, wrong, offensive to someone, etc. And you have to, in society, there has to be a path to, like, redemption and See, but I don't even agree. I don't even necessarily agree that, like you need to get to a place of redemption. Sometimes you just gotta let people be fucking idiots. Sometimes you gotta let people make shitty fucking jokes. Like, that's the world. In fact, I would argue a lot of these people are more fucking interesting than anybody who's sitting there. I I have all the correct opinions and always have yeah, all the correct opinions. 100%. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a very normal person. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Usually you're not interesting. You're annoying as fuck. Privately, those people are the fucking weirdest, like creepiest. And they're nobody the, wants to be with them. Who, right. Who are actually psychopathic. All right. So let's move on to the. Uh, I, I want to talk about this mental. I know thing. you're into this one. Yeah. So. Um, So apparently, is it the, yes, the FDA, the FDA um, is going to get the ball rolling on banning menthol cigarettes. For those of you who don't know what menthol cigarettes are, that's weird because you probably live under a rock, but menthol cigarettes, (laughs) just like minty flavored cigarettes. So apparently the ban has been sought by the public health advocacy groups for a really long time. Um, There's a Thursday deadline to respond to a lawsuit 
demanding that the Food and Drug Administration take action on a 2013 citizen petition. So this is something that some, I would argue, fringe groups have been pushing for for a long time. Um, And I guess there was the comment period for the FDA, basically, where people can say whatever they think about Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Now, it's going to take a while. So the FDA decision doesn't immediately ban the flavors, but people can stockpile if need be. I might even do it on principle. Um, So it starts this rulemaking process. It's going to take years. And when the final decision comes, uh, the tobacco industry is probably going to sue to try to counter it. And listen, this is a very rare instance where I actually totally agree with the tobacco companies on this. And in fact, I'll go further. In 2009, the FDA banned flavored cigarettes, all flavored cigarettes except except menthol and regular flavored. And um, and their argument was, well, listen, you got pineapple flavor, strawberry flavor, Coca-Cola flavor, whatever it may be. You're getting kids hooked. Mm-hmm. And so we got to ban it because you're getting kids. So what about the children? Oh, I got the children. Well, I just I hate that fucking argument because, okay, you want to ban all porn because some kid might illegally look at porn. It's already illegal for kids. So if you want to enforce those laws, enforce those laws. But don't take it away from grownups. Yeah. So to me, the issue is more about I mean, look, I think that drugs should be decriminalized. So, of course, I think like a ban on menthol cigarettes is um, I'm not in favor of that whatsoever. To me, the bigger issue is the way that these things are marketed. So the tobacco companies, this is all documented, they they would like take flavors from popular kids drink like Tang and Mm -hmm. and Hawaiian Punch. Those may be incorrect, but I'm pretty sure those are the actual ones and use them to incorporate into their flavors in an intentionally to try to market to kids. That's extraordinarily fucked up. Right. So but this is all kind of just like a symptom of our capitalist system that this crap and, you know, the terrible sugary cereals and the giant soft drinks and all this stuff that is incredibly damaging for people's health. It's marketed to children. Um, It's used to like, you know, as like an opiate of the masses to gloss over all the other ways in which people are made miserable. So. To me, more of the issue is like the marketing and the advertising industry and the way that it's pitched to people than the product itself, which I think if, you know, people, adults can make a choice about what they want to do with their lives and their bodies. So, yes, what I would say to that is, uh, you know, I'm in favor of legalizing, taxing and regulating drugs. And so this would fall under that banner. So if you want to regulate certain things about cigarettes, I get it. Yeah. So there's, a, you Who know. they can be marketed to, where they can be Well, sold, not just that. Ages, I'll go further. All that stuff. No, I'll go further. It's also, I forget the exact number, but it's there's like hundreds of different carcinogenic things in cigarettes. In each cigarette, there's hundreds of different carcinogens. Mm-hmm. And so if you say to me, hey... There's however many, 400,000 or some crazy number of people who die every year because of this. Little much. So what we're going to do is reel it in a little bit, take some of the worst carcinogens, regulate it out of the cigarettes. You're only allowed to have X amount. You know what I mean? Like, if you want to go that far, I'm still with you. I'll Mm -hmm. hear you out. But that's where I draw the line is you want to regulate it to make it a little bit healthier. You even want to do some sort of um, amount limitations in your regulation. I would kind of be open to hearing those arguments. And I would, I'm also 100% open to what you said. You want to ban advertising? That's totally fine. Yeah. You want to put on 
the the cigarette boxes the thing like they do in Canada, I think, where yeah, it's like, like disgusting yeah. lungs that are black yes. and it's like, this is what's going to happen if you keep doing this shit. Listen, fact of the matter is, even though that is propagandizing people, it it's a fact. It's a fact. That's what's going to... My dad died in part because he was a smoker, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So believe me, I'm sympathetic. So I'm in favor of all that kind of regulation, but I definitely draw the line at, well, we're just going to take all the flavors that are actually appealing and say no more of that because it's just at some point it really is too much it's authoritarian it's nanny state it's not letting people be people and make decisions and if they can ban that yes what is to stop them from saying we'll ban alcohol like go back to the prohibition days yeah. or we'll ban porn or, or we'll ban gambling whatever it is i mean it's just it's just too much like get the fuck out of my private i want the government to do the shit that's actually important. I want them to stop the murderers and the rapists and the assaulters and all that stuff. And I want them to regulate Wall Street to make sure that they're not ripping everybody off and they're not doing billions of dollars worth of fraud on a regular basis. Yeah. I don't want you telling me that I can't have a fucking pineapple flavored cigarette if I want a pineapple flavored well, cigarette. And, Fuck off. And meanwhile, Roundup is still like, you know, on the market giving exactly. people cancer. And the way like soda is probably one of the biggest killers in the country mcdonald's the, like the mass amounts of sugar that are marketed to us so look i would be for banning advertising on all of those things personally i um, hear you on that i sort of do on things like pharmaceuticals i mean the fact that we oh. that there are drug advertisements on our tv oh. it was funny what was the program that was on it was recently? something something on um on the royal with, family the, yes, it was Meghan, Meghan markle, markle and the other harry or whatever yeah, and british interview. people watched it and they were like and they were like what? You the got fuck is going you're on advertising for drugs yeah. for like medicine what are and you we doing just get used to that like man that's what we do here but it is crazy. fucked up but the, yeah exactly yeah. so ban that shit ban on uh, cigarette advertisements already limited but they should just be completely banned and i think that to me is is the direction to go in but while you're at it i would ban advertisements for things that have a high sugar content because that shit is terrible for you too I hear you on that. I'm not going to say no on that. I think there's good, solid reasoning to do that. But all I would say is that's part of the regulation. But where I definitely draw the line is don't tell me you're going to ban the shit because then fuck you and you're authoritarian and there's no limiting principle. You could just say I'll ban whatever the fuck I want to ban. And it's like you got to let people be people and be free adults and make decisions. Agreed. Um, Should we get to our guest? I think we should. All right. So he requires no introduction. However, one of the nation's top public intellectuals. He's now the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Chair at Union Theological Seminary, just left Harvard. He's taught at Harvard, Yale, University of Paris, written 20 different books, edited 13. Some of um, his most noteworthy works were Race Matters and Democracy Matters, the one and only Dr. Cornell West. Dr. West, it is so nice to see you, sir. It is always a blessing to see you, my dear sister, and my brother, too. Indeed, both of you. This really is a treat for me. I'm like a kid in a candy store right now. <laughs> We're both very excited to get to have the opportunity to speak with you. We've been planning this for a little while. Um, I actually wanted to start with just how has this year been for you? I know the last time we spent some time together, we were at Harvard for Bernie. Obviously, a lot of things are different between now and then. Um, what is this year that's been so challenging for so many people been like for you? Well, you know, like so many brothers and sisters of all colors all around the country and world, it's been catastrophic, really, Um, both with the pandemic, with the lockdown, 
with the inability to make uh, a connection with loved ones, the inability to sustain friendships in the concrete and in the flesh. Uh, uh, and then, you know, with the controversy with, at Harvard, once again, 20 years later, another ridiculous cycle of being disrespected. Uh, and then now with my mother passing as well, that's just a shattering of the foundations, of course. So it has been catastrophic. Uh, there's no doubt about it. But I've always uh, viewed myself as a blues man. And blues means you're on intimate terms with catastrophe, whatever form it takes. And the question becomes what kind of stamina, perseverance, what kind of strength, what kind of uh, compassion can be uh, wrestle out of the catastrophic, and that's really what B.B. Uh, King and Billy Holiday and Ma Rainey and so many other uh, great blues artists are all about. You know, how do you how do you persist with dignity in the midst of catastrophe? As uh, you know, Crystal and I were just saying before we jumped into the interview, it's uh, we're really sorry for your loss. I know that's got to be a very tough thing. I um, I lost my father when I was really young and I know, you know, how, how painful a thing it is to lose a parent. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about what you just mentioned in regards to Harvard. Um, do you think that for people who don't know, you were denied tenure, definitely unjustly. Do you think it was politically motivated? Well, it had to be my brother. It it had to be, I mean, if I'm, uh, tenured at Yale in 1984, uh, with two books, and uh, a university professor at Harvard in, t- in 1997, uh, which is 17 professors out of 1,500 on faculty, and then university professor at Princeton, which is only 21 professors out of about 1,300, and that's 2002. And then I come back in 2021 and and and. and they have a committee recommend a tenure process, and they say no, and it has nothing to do with politics. I mean, it, 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 you know, it's 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 a joke. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It's preposterous that it wouldn't have something to do with politics. Now they could say that I was getting too old because of my age at at sixty six, uh, but with the Gifford lectures. Uh, uh, coming, you know, that's the prestigious lectures is in some ways um, the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in philosophy with John Dewey and William James and Alfred North Whitehead and Reinhold Niebuhr and Martha Nussbaum. These are stellar figures. I'll be giving those same lectures in a couple of years. So they still think I have something to say as an older brother. So I don't think Harvard can fall back on age either. So it had to be politics. It had to be politics. There's no doubt about it. But you recall 2001, I had I had a similar uh, struggle with Brother Larry Summers, who was then president. And, uh, you know, he had his own arrogance, his own condescension. And he'd always been kind of... Um, uh, 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 kind of what would be the right word is more than a bully, really. It's a kind of gangster in a certain sense, in terms of not just me, but so many others. And that's not the case with President Bacow. Bacow is not a gangster or a bully. I think he's just relatively spineless. And he allows larger forces to shape what goes on in his presidency and goes along with it. And so, in that sense, he's complicitous. But uh, he's not he's not a gangster or a bully the way Brother Summers has been throughout his career. 
so that the idea that politics had nothing to do with it. You know, it's a joke. I see, you know, you look, I've been a human being for 67 years, a black man in the American empire for 67 years. Uh, I, I have a fairly good sense of when arbitrary power is being uh, deployed against me. Which of your political positions do you think are the most sensitive or provocative or potentially challenging of power at Harvard and elsewhere? Yeah, it's a wonderful question, my dear sister, because there's a number of them. I mean, you know, I was on the uh, the faculty advisory group for the fossil fuel group that was engaged in a magnificent uh, effort with Sister Cohen and the others to uh, force Harvard to divest. Uh, I was also on the prison divestment uh, 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 committee among the students. Uh, uh, I was, uh, I think, more than anything else, even given our work there, Sister Crystal, when you were there, which your brilliant self and all the others uh, for Brother Bernie, that uh, uh, that was controversial, but it was still within the realm of acceptability. I think being the faculty advisor for the Palestinian student group, my dear mm. brothers and sisters there, I think that's the one that probably went outside of the line for uh, many Harvard uh, staff, administrators, and even a slice of the faculty. And people say, well, no, Brother West, you're going too far. Where's your evidence and what have you? And I said, well, they had already denied uh, three professors uh, tenure based what I thought on on some political uh, uh, the political positions that all three of them held. They had powerful critiques of the Israeli occupation, including a very uh, courageous and visionary uh, uh, Jewish Israeli sister who was denied uh, a position uh, and written two powerful books on the issue. So my hunch is is that it, more than any other political factor, that's probably the one. Now people would say, "Where are you going too far? Where's the evidence? What other evidence can you muster?" Unless Harvard itself says and tells me and the world what it was, they remain silent. Mm. And I find it very interesting that uh, so many of my critics. I had a wonderful engagement with Brother Steinberg. Uh, his name is Brother Jonas Steinberg, who was uh, head of Hillel at Harvard. And when I made this claim, he, you know, he kind of went uh, berserk a bit and said, this is paranoia and said, this is anti-Semitism and mm. so forth. And uh, it didn't put out a wrote a piece in the Crimson saying that I had shirked uh, and refused discussion. He had sent some emails to a site that I never received. So as soon as I heard about it, I gave him a call. He was kind enough to respond. I said, we've got to have dinner immediately, which is what we did that next night. We met for two hours and had a wonderful conversation. In fact, I started with a prayer. I told my dear brother, I said, uh, let us start with a prayer. I said, dear Lord, we were two cracked vessels as we wrestled with very difficult and delicate issues, but because it's not going to be a bumpy ride, just throwing in a little Betty Davis, you know, one of the greatest mm -hmm. artists of the century. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, and he and I, we 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 had a wonderful conversation. We agreed to disagree, and so forth. But it it became clear that uh, it was a bit more complicated than one thought. It wasn't just a matter of my anti-Semitism in that way. And then he explained why, in fact, he was so very very uh, quick to the draw in terms of his critique of me because of his concerns with anti-Jewish and anti-Semitic uh, sensibilities. And I told him, good God Almighty, I'm, 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 I hate anti-Jewish prejudice, anti-Jewish orientation, anti-Jewish sensibility as I do any other anti-black or anti-white, anti-woman, anti-gay or what have you. I try to be morally consistent. Uh, but I also hate anti-Palestinian prejudice Yep. And sensibility, just as much as I hate any other kind of anti-prejudice uh, uh, or sensibility. So we agreed to disagree, but it was it was a coming together, and I appreciated it. It, it wasn't reflected so much in the uh, in the newspapers it, 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 because nobody follows through on those kind of coming togethers. You know what I mean? That's right. Mm. But it's less sensationalist. They absolutely said so it was a whole lot about his attacks on me, but it was no stories whatsoever on the fact that I'd never received the emails or the mm. fact that we broke, broke bread the next day or the fact that we intended to follow through as we will with our conversations. Yeah, Dr. West, to your point, I mean, we've seen um, anti-BDS legislation pop up in states around the country. It's actually a very uh, persistent attack on First Amendment rights and free speech. We've seen professors get fired for supporting BDS and standing up for, uh, you know, a pro-Palestinian position. Um, to pivot a little bit here, I'm, I'm really curious what you make so far of the Biden administration. What grade, grade would you give him and what advice would you give him? Mm-hmm. But just one last quick point on, on the BDS. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I got a lovely note from Brother Omar. But I just think it's very important that we proceed based on moral and spiritual grounds so that when we perceive any crimes against humanity, it could be in regard to Biden, let us say. It could be mass incarceration. It could be the unleashing of Wall Street greed with the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act. It could be uh, uh, the Israeli occupation. It could, what, whatever crime against humanity, we have to be consistent. You see. Mm. And, uh, and therefore, uh, people do change. I mean, Biden can change. He can become the LBJ that I would like him to be and many, many others would like him to be. We remember LBJ was a white supremacist from Jim Crow, Texas. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought he'd be a a force for good against white supremacy. Well, he ended up being a force for good on the domestic front, not on the international front. On Vietnam, he was tied to war, uh, crimes against humanity, dropping bombs in the way that he did with with with, with, with Kissinger and the others uh, to, to become fundamentally a part of it under Nixon as well. So that we just have to be consistent. I mean, and that is the crucial point to make so that was with, with, with Joe Biden he, he goes into the White House with blood on his hands that's almost a million precious Iraqis who were killed hmm. I've taught in prisons for 40 years those brothers and sisters in prison many of them are there because he he was an architect along with the, the white supremacists of the old Jim Crow 
of Strom Thurmond and Jesse Helms. They're the ones who wrote the laws with Biden. The same would be true in terms of Israeli occupation. He has been a facilitator of it in that regard. And same is true with the Wall Street greed. So that he, that, but, but he can change. And I think he is in the process of changing. I think the tremendous pressure being brought to bear from the Occupy movement, the tremendous pressure brought to bear, Black Lives Matter, tremendous pressure brought to bear on the revitalization of the trade union movement. All of these are putting tremendous power and bringing power and pressure to bear on Biden. And at the center of it really is Brother Bernie. I really do believe they've got a friendship and Bernie was a, uh, a leader of one of the most important campaigns in the history of the country in terms of trying to ensure that poor and working people are at the center of our vision of who we are as a nation. And Biden is making some concessions, but they're still concessions. They're still concessions. When it comes to foreign policy, Haiti, he's still in the Neolithic age. He's still siding with the dictatorial elites there in Haiti. I was glad what he did in Afghanistan and Yemen. Indeed, when it comes to Israeli and Palestinians, he's still very much a uh, uh, part of an older paradigm. So we have to continue to continue to put pressure on him. And from the speech that we heard uh, uh, before the joint session of Congress, it's clear that it's the Chinese empire and the Russian empire that he's obsessed with. Mm. And I think he's got to do some rethinking on on, on both fronts, I think both the Chinese and Russian empires are, uh, are, are, are regimes of domination and repression and regimentation. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, it's not as if, you know, you're going to respond to them with some kind of might or with some kind of threat or with some kind of... Uh, 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 what would be the right word here? Uh, 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 belligerence. Self. You say what, my brother? I said belligerence. Yes, that that's a wonderful word. That's a one, but also self righteousness. Mm. You see, self righteousness, given all of the imperial uh, weight in the last hundred and fifty years of the United States, somehow we're going to pose as if we're some innocent grand beacon of liberty and city on the hill. My God, no <laughs> way, no way. That actually reminds me of, um, I don't know if you caught this, Vice President Harris had a call with the president of Guatemala about, you know, the number of migrants that are coming to this country from that country. And she said, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but she said, you have to deal with the root causes, mm. which are poverty and climate destruction and a lack of good governance and violence, including against indigenous people. No mention no irony. of the long U.S. role in fomenting those exact conditions in that exact country. There's a, a, a very much a desire to sort of erase any bad acts of the United States and the ripple effect that they have across Absolutely. the globe. I was wondering, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, but I was also wondering... On the foreign policy piece of what Biden was saying last night, he almost set up this sort of Cold War framing mm. of the democratic yes. world, the small d democratic world versus the world of autocrats. And he said, look, they think that democracy is over. They think that we're too slow, that we can't get things done and that they're going to be the regimes of the future. What did you think of that framing from Biden? 
I just think that it shows the myopia and the short-sightedness of his speechwriters. Uh, that his speechwriters seem to have caught some fire when it comes to domestic issues and really are trying to build on the FDR LBJ legacy of the uh, New Deals and Great Society programs. But when it comes to international relations, uh, uh, you know, I think it was my sister's code pink, so it gives Biden a D. And I think they're right about that, that he's still very much in the Neolithic age when it comes to international relations. Uh, uh, and, the, and the think that somehow you can have a Manichaean perspective, a, a all good on one side, all evil on the other, you would have thought that that would be something that would have been radically called into question. I mean, even George Kennan and Reinhold Niebuhr and Arthur Schlesinger Jr. back in the 40s and 50s uh, radically called that into question. It, and if, if a more accurate juxtaposition would be actually the United States as a oligarchic society hmm. with some rights and liberties, but the voices of poor and working people being tertiary vis-a-vis -vis the voices of the 1%, the voices of the corporate elite, the, corp the voices of the ruling classes. And that's empirically uh, uh, verified by a whole host of social scientists around the country. Uh, so that the, the autocracy, yes, it's true that China and, and, and Russia are autocratic in that way. But the oligarchic character of the United States and the repressive apparatus of the United States, namely its police in poor working class, black and brown and indigenous people's communities. You see, and if you live in those communities, you do not experience some grand American liberty and some grand American democracy. You experience the effects of oligarchic policies and the ways in which repression is integral to your everyday life. And we see this all the time, even on the mainstream press, you get even middle class uh, black families and brown families saying they don't know what to say to their children when they get in the car or when they go walking and so forth and so on. So it's just a matter of telling the truth. It's just a matter of telling the truth. It's not matter of romanticizing either side, idealizing either side, but just being honest. I think it's very difficult for Biden and his speechwriters to be honest uh, when it comes especially to so-called foreign relations or international affairs. Mm. Dr. West, um, sticking uh, on the issue of foreign policy here, uh, I got pretty excited. I know Crystal did as well when Biden announced what was supposed to be a full withdrawal from Afghanistan. In fact, he even he even went out there and made compelling arguments as to why we need to fully get out. You know, he's like, hey, the reason we went in there was to get bin Laden. Bin Laden's been gone for a while. What are we going to do? You want to stay there five years, 10 years, 20 years, 40 years? So he was sounding like any one of us on that issue. But then afterwards, I saw some contradictory information. Some people are saying uh, he's really fully going to get out. And even the CIA is afraid of that. And they've been running hit pieces on Biden now in the media. They've planted some hit pieces saying, oh, you can't fully get out. But then others say, no, even Biden's most ambitious plan takes out the boots on the ground, but still leaves about 18,000 contractors, which would mean CIA people, special ops people, corporations, so on and so forth. So my question is, do you think he's really going to fully get out? 
Yeah, again, who was such a good question. It's a blessing to be with both of you all because <laughs> it's, it's our pleasure. so hard in, in the press to get people who are just so intellectually uh, engaged and honest in this regard. Now, I think that uh, Brother Jumu Baraka and the uh, Black Alliance for Peace and other organizations that keep track of the truth on the ground when it comes to foreign relations acknowledge precisely what you said, that there's going to be thousands mm-hmm. of private contractors, there's going to be thousands of advisors, so that what was crucial was at the symbolic level of rhetoric, mm-hmm. Biden was saying, we are on our way out. And that is still significant. I don't want to downplay that. I don't want to downplay that. But the truth is, is that there's still going to be networks. There's going to be matrices. There's going to be close relations. There's going to be those contractors and advisors tied to the U.S. government, tied also to the private sector in the American empire who will remain in Afghanistan. And I hope that the the mainstream press doesn't shut down just because the president says says that the soldiers are coming out. We've got to remain very, very vigilant if we're going to find out the truth in regard to what is really going on there. And so I think your question is a very important one. And I hope that the New York Times and the Post and Atlantic Monthly and the New Yorker and some of the other more mainstream uh, uh, neoliberal uh, uh, sites uh, are actually honest about this. You know, you said something with regards to Biden's speech writers that you felt, you know, they didn't want to get at the truth or, or share the truth or be upfront with the American people. Do you think that people of the country, by and large, really want to hear the truth? Well, it's hard to say, but, you know, you don't ask people's permission to love them. You don't ask people's permission to even laugh and you don't ask people's permission to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that see what what it you, you can't go through life just being a, a, a thermometer, you know. You got to be a thermostat, mm. and a thermostat's trying to shape and mold uh, how people see the world, how people view the world, what the climate of opinion is. So yeah, the truth is always something that pushes all of us. I mean, we we, we can raise that question in our own lives, right? How many of us really want to know the truth about ourselves? Well, I know Mm -hmm. myself, you know, I would like that on an installment plan. (laughs) (laughs) Too much truth by myself might might shatter my whole sense of who I am. But I feel in the end, I have to be interested in that truth if I'm willing to grow, if I'm willing to develop, if I'm willing to mature. And most importantly, if I'm willing to armor myself to be of service to others. So to the degree to which, you know, many of our fellow citizens, citizens, if not most, are not interested in the truth. We say we understand the sense, the sentiment, but here comes the truth. Here it comes to the best of our ability. And you do the same thing to me gently, but also intensely. And I think that's the fundamental role of not just the intellectual or the artist or the uh, prophetic figure. This is true for all of us as human beings and as citizens, and most importantly, as persons who are trying to be forces of good before the worms get our bodies. Dr. West, about maybe a year or two ago, I remember I was watching uh, a fantastic interview you did with our friend Joe Rogan. And um, I remember that you 
you were so good at discussing the ideologies and philosophies of various thinkers throughout time, various philosophers. And so something that I've thought about since then is I'm curious, to what extent is your ideology based on religion? To what extent is it based on philosophy? To what extent is it based on life experience? Who are your intellectual heroes? Yeah, see, I don't think that there's a definitive answer to that, body, that, 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 that question because I don't have full transparency about myself, my brother. Mm. That uh, See, as a jazz man, I know there's hybridity and improvisation and swing and the blues shot all through not just me, but also the sources from which I come. You see what I mean? So that on the one hand, at, you know, I come from the West family. That, that's mom and dad. I come from Shiloh Baptist Church. That's a particular version of Christianity. Mm. I was deeply influenced by the Black Panther Party that was right down the street from the church. I, I, I fell in love with Kierkegaard. I fell in love with Nietzsche. I fell in deep love with Chekhov. I'm falling in love now with Pasternak. Uh, these are artists. These are thinkers who are wrestling with what it means to be human, how you preserve some vitality and vibrancy in the face of overwhelming grimness and, 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 and dimness and darkness. And so I don't really have one ideology. You know, some people call me a Marxist and a communist because I talk about empire and predatory capitalism a lot. I say, yes, that brother, that particular Jewish brother by origin and Protestant by upbringing uh, uh, named Karl Marx, who ended up being an atheist and secular. He had some very important things to say about capitalism, but he has no monopoly on the truth. I, I learned so much from Bell Hooks. You know, I learned mm -hmm. so much from Simone de Beauvoir in terms of critiques of patriarchy. Uh, they become indispensable, but they also don't have full possession of the truth. I learned a whole lot from Du Bois. I learned a whole lot from Toni Morrison. I learned much, much from James Baldwin in terms of critiques of white supremacy, but they don't have a monopoly of the truth. Uh, so that in the end, you know, I'm just one singular uh, uh, voice, my brother. I'm trying to lift my voice as the anthem of black people, right? Lift every voice, just like you all lift your voice. But the voice that I lift is a hybrid voice. It's a composite voice. You know, it's indispensable to, on the one hand, the, le the Socratic legacy of Athens. The Socrates means much to me, as does Diderot as does an Anglo-Saxon named John Brown, who loved black people enough to die for black people. Also the prophetic legacy of Jerusalem, that Hebrew scripture means so much to me. This is what our Jewish brothers and sisters and all of their, their genius gave to the world, or one of the things they gave to the world, this hesed, this steadfast love, this loving kindness to the orphan and the widow and the fatherless and the motherless and the subjugated and the dominated and the oppressed. Justice, justice thou shalt pursue. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's Esther, that's Amos, that's Isaiah. And then as a Christian, here comes this particular Palestinian Jew named Jesus. 
Jesus who makes his way directly to the temple, which was the largest edifice east of Rome with 400 Roman troops on the one side, the bankers on the inside, the intellectuals alongside rationalizing the hierarchy. He runs them out and that is what leads to his crucifixion by the Roman Empire, the largest empire of its day. So all of these stories and narratives and analysis feed in to my own fallen and finite perception of the world as I make my attempt to engage in quest for truth and beauty and goodness, but grounded in my sense of the holy. Now, of course, there's American pragmatism of Emerson, of Whitman, Muriel Rukeyser, of John Dewey, of William James, of Richard Rorty. It goes on and on. They mean much to me as well. But then, you know, Curtis Mayfield, good God Almighty, Aretha Franklin, you know, Prince, he got a new album out, right? Welcome to the world. He and I were on the plane to, uh, to Montreux a few years ago, and I, and I was playing with him, and I said, you know, Prince, you're a genius, man. I said, you're great, but you ain't no Curtis Mayfield. He said, what you mean, brother? What you mean? <laughs> I said, man, Curtis had a political dimension to his spirituality that's thicker than yours. So I mm. did not know. He went back into the studio and cut an album and said, now tell Wes when this comes out that I can do Curtis, but Curtis can't do me. <laughs> so the album is just dropping, and we've been talking about it in, 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 in his camp and so forth. And welcome to the world, Prince dealing with one of my soulmates, Curtis Mayfield. Wow. So I got Curtis, you got Aretha, you got Chekhov, you got Marx, you got Kierkegaard, you got Pasternak, you got Tony Morrison. I've got so many who are so companions of mine, and it doesn't result in any one ideology, my brother. Hmm. It's just an attempt to make sense of the world and try to hold on to some integrity, given all of the the inconsistencies that might follow therefrom. Mm, so well said. You know, as someone who does come from a place of deep Christian faith, what do you make of the evangelical rights falling in love with Trump? I mean, when he first was on the scene, they were skeptical of him. He brings on Mike Pence as his vice president to try to, you know, calm the waters there, reassure them he's going to be good for whatever they see as their interests. But really, over the course of time, they became his strongest, most adamant supporters. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, yeah, that's I appreciate that query. Um, it's hard to know fully what's going on. I think much of what's going on is first the acknowledgement that uh, the dominant forms of institutional religion uh, tend to accommodate themselves to status quos and structures of domination. Mm. This is true for Christianity, for Judaism, for Buddhism, for Confucianism, traditional religions, and so forth. So that you know, you got Constantinian Christianity, right? Christianity begins with Jesus on the cross, drops at the blood, drops the blood at the bottom of the cross, and those that blood transforms into various moments of love enactment. So they were known as the people of the way of love. And they were thrown in lion's dens and so forth and so on. Uh, uh, but you know, by 312, that same 
movement has become now incorporated into the Roman Empire under Constantine. And so the dominant institutional forms of Christianity have always been accommodating the Christian to the powers that be. And when you get to the United States, it means what? It means that they're deeply supportive and, and sustaining of white supremacy, of predatory capitalism, of patriarchy, of homophobia, of anti-Jewish sentiments, of, of anti-Arab sentiments, anti-Muslim sentiments. But there's always been prophetic voices and prophetic manifestations of Christianity that have been critical of institutional Christianity. And so when you look at evangelicals uh, in our day, you're actually looking at descendants of deep, institutionalized forms of Christianity that have been so ensconced in structures of domination that the lens through which they view the world are very, very narrow. You see, when you think, for example, of compassion for so many of our conservative right-wing Christian brothers and sisters, compassion means being concerned about the baby in the body of a woman after conception. And they are on fire of defense of those babies. So abortion becomes their major issue for a long time. Same sex in the same way. The only way we can actually talk about generating the kinds of virtues is to make sure that marriage is always between a man and a woman and so forth. And so it's very narrow framework in which you understand uh, uh, what in fact Hesed, in the, in the Jewish sense of loving kindness and steadfast love, or love in the way in which that other Jewish brother, Paul, writes about it in his letters mm. in 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. You all probably know that I have a very deep brotherhood and friendship with brother, brother Robbie George at Princeton. We've been teaching together now for almost 15, 20 years, travel the country wrestling with this. And we talk precisely about these issues. I mean, he's a conservative brother we've got some deep disagreements in terms of policy we have deep love for each other but we try to talk about the ways in which any conception of love and justice can get constrained and we fight over what those constraints are but of course he's not pro-trump in any way he was very critical of trump but for the evangelicals for them to hold on to abortion on the one hand to hold on to critiques of same-sex marriage and then to hold on to foreign policy to a, a deeply conservative understandings of Jewish nationalism, of Zionism, tied to Netanyahu, uh, uh, that was their hope. And uh, uh, they see so much of uh, secular culture being eaten up by, uh, by the market. And so they see chaos, they see uh, anarchy, they see cruelty. And so they have a certain sense of their own uh, alleged purity and they held on for Trump for dear life. Now, the irony is, I mean, if you're going to find a Constantinian figure in American politics, you're going to find a bigger gangster, capital G, and neo-fascist, than that's Brother Trump. <laughs> and so once again, Christians find themselves falling into uh, falling into this, this, this right-wing accommodation. You saw the same thing with the, uh, the German Christians that fell in love with Hitler and the Italian Christians who fell in love with Franco. And Spanish Christians who fell in love with, with uh, I mean, Italian Christians who fell in love with Mussolini and the uh, Spanish Christians who fell in love with Franco. And the same is true, you know, religious folks, African dictators, Latin American dictators, 
it goes across the board. And again, Christianity doesn't have a monopoly on this. As I said, every every religion uh, uh, tends to move in this direction, but there's always prophetic remnants. This is, it could be Sufis, it could be Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's of Judaism, who are prophetic over against the institutional forms of Judaism that too often accommodate itself to status quo. Yeah. To Crystal's point, Dr. West, have you have you had any success um, like deconverting some of these evangelical Christians? Because it strikes me that, you know, there's a logical point that we can make to them, and it's just a question of whether or not it lands, that what they really fundamentally do is pick and choose which parts of the Bible they personally want to stress. So, you know, they might talk about gay marriage, and they're against gay marriage, but then they ignore that if you read the Bible, there's, you know, it would be anti-war in many respects, and it would be in favor of, you know, looking after the common man and pro-immigrant, pro-immigrant, not too great on, you know, phenomenal wealth. And even you go to the Old Testament, it's supposed to be an abomination to eat shellfish. So, you know, if you point these out, point this stuff out to evangelical Christians, have you had any success in like deconverting some of these folks? Well, I mean, you know, I, I don't really keep measurement of my deconversion power, my brother. <laughs> You're a convincing guy, I had to ask. Because <laughs> I, 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 I need some conversion myself on some things. But I have been, uh, I've been delivered to university. Brother Robbie and I spoke before almost 11,000 folk there, and we had a magnificent engagement. Uh, there were a number of students who told me that they were deeply influenced by uh, a number of my works and writings and mm. speeches, what have you, so that uh, I don't know exactly what the effects and consequences are, but I know that there's openness there in that regard. And I've always had an openness. I, I spoke at the uh, so-called Vatican of Evangelical Christianity, which is Wheaton College out in Illinois. Mm. I had a magnificent time out there with those evangelical brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, they are, you know, disproportionately white in terms of their presence in institution. You got a lot of black Christians who are evangelical. I've got evangelical aspects of my own Christian witness, too, in a certain sense. But so many of the black Christians who are attuned to white supremacy recognize the degree to which white evangelicals disproportionately are too willing to downplay white supremacy, if not embrace white supremacy. And so you can imagine when we talk about Christian evangelicals, you know, it's different on chocolate sides of town than it is on vanilla sides of town. But I just think we have to have an openness and hope we can have some impact. Now, I do know this. I do know that there's a significant number of folks who supported Trump who also supported my dear brother Bernie. Mm, and, that's true. And that had to do with their their contempt for neoliberal elites in in high places. Be they corporate media, being corporate media, be they in Congress, be they at Harvard, be they in Hollywood, there is a certain uh, concern among everyday evangelicals. Uh, uh, that the self-righteousness and the condescension and the arrogance of highly educated elites and the chattering classes that look down on them, view them as deplorables, irredeemables, and so forth and so on, uh, generates a real animus 
And and with Bernie's campaign, they saw a brother. He went to University of Chicago and come from the best borough in the country, Brooklyn. Uh, so he's highly educated, but he had a concern and he had a disposition and a humility about his willingness to be a part of working class movements that some of those Trumpites had actually supported and then shifted over from Bernie to Trump. So that you can see how complicated this thing is. The important thing is, is that we never, ever, ever should view any of these movements as, as monolithic or homogeneous. There's just so much heterogeneity and diversity there. And uh, you always remember that line from the great Henry James, the letter he wrote to the grand Robert Louis Stevenson. I think it was January 12th, 1901. He said, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. Mm. No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. So whatever theories we have of evangelicals, of women, black folk, working class movements, Black Lives Matter, that we've got to make sure that we are improvisational and flexible enough to see what's really going on. If our theory doesn't allow us to see what's really going on, something's wrong with the theory. Because people are in flux. People are in process. People are searching and yearning. And, and, and they're changing over time. And we have to have lens that allow us to see our fellow human beings, to see structures, to yeah. see institutions, to see empires, to see police departments that are not just consisted of individual policemen, but cultural units of silence when the police who are involved in killing our young brothers and sisters who are black and brown and the others who are less so but won't say a mumbling word. Well, that's yeah. part of the culture. Yeah. We've got to be able to see that if we're going to be effective in our courageous action and witness. For a lot of um, modern American political history, a lot of the sort of like personal judgment and condemnation of individual people and the mantra of personal responsibility and all of that has come from the right. And the left has stretched stress, the structures like you're talking about and the systems that you have to see and understand. It's not just the police officer who kneels on George Floyd's neck. It's, it's the entire culture and system that enabled that moment to transpire in broad daylight for all of us to witness this horrific murder in the street. Do you feel that today there's too much of that personalized judgment, contempt and condemnation coming from the political left? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's partly a matter of desperation. I mean, I can understand it, you know, that uh, the poison in the well is so overwhelming and that the invisibility of the humanity of, of poor people and black people and brown people and women and gays and lesbians and non-binaries and so forth is such that you, you, you just have such a distrust of any discourse, a distrust of any framework, and therefore there's a propensity to just want to cancel individuals who are not seeing one's humanity. You just want to cancel individuals who are rendering other people invisible. So I understand the impulse. I just think it's, it's not a mature one. Uh, because in the end, I mean, we're all candidates for being canceled. All of us are impure. All of us have done things and said things we know we should not have done. And we'll probably say and do things that we shouldn't do in the future. The question becomes, how do we create mechanisms of responsibility, answerability, accountability 
of each other so that when so we don't cancel folk we render folk accountable and you render them accountable by casting a spotlight accenting exactly what they did that's wrong showing what they can do that is right trying to make sure that they have some interest in integrity so they can engage in their own self-accountability rather than having to be rendered accountable all the time by folk who could potentially cancel them but there's a uh, there's an impatience nowadays my dear sister and i understand it you know these are uh, these are very very uh, dim and grim days they're apocalyptic days and in such contexts impatience tends to overflow and so we have to uh, we have to have a revolutionary patience and a revolutionary patience is suspicious of any cancellation it understands the impulse behind cancellation but it also recognizes that uh, you know in the end we've got to have our voices lifted people have to be able to enter public space without humiliation and be honest enough to say what's on their hearts and minds and souls whether one agrees or disagrees with them Mm. Dr. West, during the Obama era, you were um, on the receiving end of some, you know, rather vicious attacks. And I always felt like, um, you know, mainstream media sort of kept you at an arm's length because you you had some particularly biting critiques of Obama because you were critiquing him from his left. So my question for you is, what was your last straw with him? Mine was the drone war. Was it the drone war, the Wall Street bailout, not prosecuting Bush for torture? What was it? I mean, mine was his uh, uh, his close relation to Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And you remember that was a moment in which it was very clear that Wall Street crimes uh, were massive. Uh, and Wall Street power was being deployed in such an arbitrary way against precious poor and working people, insider trading, market manipulation, fraudulent activity, predatory lending, and so forth. And when he made it very clear, because many of us sat with him in 2007, we sat down and talked with him. And uh, I had a long conversation with my dear brother, and he was very honest with me. He said, look, Brother West, I know I'm not as progressive as, 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 as you are in terms of certain issues. And I said, that's fine. I, I supported Bill Bradley. I love Bill Bradley. He wasn't as progressive in that way either. I supported Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton wasn't as progressive, but he, they were just the best relative to the other folk who were running. Uh, but when it became clear that the Geithner connection, the Robin Rubin connection, the Larry Summers connection, hmm. the connection with the Wall Street folk, and then the connection with Brennan and the others, the counterterrorist groups coming out of the Bush administration mm. that have facilitated the torture. Again, crimes against humanity. Once it was clear that that was his group, that was his connection, even as I supported him, because I started early on in Iowa and I ended the night of the campaign in Ohio. So I did all of those events for free and I would do it again just because I thought it was right. But it was clear to me that uh, he just didn't have the backbone. He, he was not a fighter for poor and working people. He was much more a very brilliant, sharp uh, 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 politician who was centrist, moderate, and neoliberal in his sensibilities. And then, of course, the drones that you talk about, my brother. I mean, I... Uh, I, I early on had uh, had called George Bush a war criminal, and he had forty five 
uh, drones dropped. And so Obama 563, I mm. think, is a recent count. Those are war crimes. So I called him a war criminal over and over again. And you can imagine that did not make me a popular brother in the black community. And I told them, I said, hey, look, I love black people till the day I die. But I don't say or speak anything in order to get people to love me. People are worthy of being loved even when I disagree with them. So it's not a quid pro quo issue that I'm fighting for black folk, fighting for working people, fighting for women dealing with patriarchal violence. And I'm not getting them, I'm not I'm not, not doing that in order for them to love me. So mm. yes, I was highly unpopular in the mm. black community because everybody was supposed to get around Obama and protect him. Mm -hmm. And I would protect him against Fox News, but I would not protect him in terms of acting as if criticism, honest, serious criticism in regard to crimes against humanity, like drones, like Wall Street greed, like mass incarceration, like mm. militarizing the, pub, the police departments. And that was under Eric Holder, who was a black brother, who I loved the brother, but he's wrong as he could be in, in that regard. Same is true with the Homeland Security cabinet member who was a black brother, my alpha brother. So, you know, we, you, brotherhood cuts much deeper than politics, but you had to be honest and candid with people. And during those eight years, I had some very rough and bumpy days. Back mm -hmm. days again. I had some bumpy, bumpy days. But the irony now is I can go back to those same sites, churches, community centers where I do. Go back. Now, the folks, brothers in the prison were with me all the way. So when I, when I teach in the prison, they still see me as Brother, you saying the same thing. I said, you're right. But I go back to the same sites now and folk will say, well, you know, Brother West, you were more right than we realized. We mm. see exactly what you were saying now. We, we, we appreciate you holding out against against the, uh, the, the grain. I said, well, I'm just trying to be true to my calling. I'm just trying yeah. to be true to my vocation. You see, doesn't make yeah. me any better. Why do you think that there was so much wariness in both of the Sanders campaigns um, towards him, of especially older black voters who seemed very skeptical of him and, of course, ultimately handed the nomination to Joe Biden? I think that uh, most of the black politicians who constitute the mainstream black leadership uh, in the black community are neoliberals, like uh, our dear brother uh, from South Carolina. Clyburn. Uh, yeah, my dear brother James Clyburn, you know, tied to the pharmaceutical company, so he's not going to come out for Medicare for all. Uh, mm. He's got a rich history in his past in terms of fighting against American apartheid. I appreciate that. But John Lewis, too, as great as John Lewis was in his heroic fight against American apartheid, he drifted into very much neoliberal space as well. So I got in a lot of trouble being critical of him. Uh, he and I did a number of things together. Uh, but we also had various various battles. Same is true on on in in terms of uh, right wing Zionism that he was tied to. So that I, uh, I, I the black black leadership has been captured by Democratic uh, parties right wing, and, and it's mainly because it's, it's a way of becoming successful. That's what great. I was going to ask. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, who? gives you hope on the political scene because i can tell you that with the with the chauvin verdict and seeing what keith ellison was able to accomplish 
I think that sort of springboarded him onto the national stage in a very prominent way. And Keith Ellison was one of the earliest supporters of Bernie Sanders. He's great on all the issues. So I'm excited about Keith Ellison. Also, Nina Turner, who's now running for Congress, is, you know, I'm over the moon with excitement about her. Who on the political scene gets you excited for 2024? In terms of elected officials or possible elected officials? Correct, yes. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah, but Nina Turner, you know, she... She's uh, she's in the class of her own, I think. Mm-hmm. It's, it's Crystal knows what I'm talking about in terms of the role that she played in the Bernie Sanders campaign. I was just a part of a, uh, a breakfast for her just a week or two ago, and I rarely give money to politicians, but I've actually given given money to her. But Brother Keith, I, I love and respect very deeply. You're absolutely right. Uh, Mr. Bush out in uh, St. Louis, mm. uh, Jamal in New York. Uh, uh, there's a there's a wave of these progressive politicians that I think are very important, but it's going to be measured by the strength of the social movements that are brought on from the outside. And that's why what you all do, that's why your particular show is so very, very important because you all are high quality, you all are highly respected, and you're willing to get us to see things that the corporate media don't want us to see mm-hmm. and then allow us to feel things so we can shatter our indifference and callousness when it comes to the things that people don't really want us to see, which mm-hmm. is primarily the suffering of poor and working people, you see. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and then we have to act courageously. Uh, but I, I, I take very seriously in the journalistic world, you know, Sister Amy of Democracy Now said, I, I love what she does. And I love her to death. Same is true with the uh, the uh, Black Agenda Report, with Brother Glenn Ford and Margaret Kimberly and Brother Danny and all of them. Their voices are very important. Counterpunch, I try to keep track of. Jacobins, I try to keep track mm-hmm. of. In terms of those who are close to my own, you know, more... Uh, more left uh, uh, sensibilities and left left way of going about the world, but I try to read widely across. Of course, you got to read the neoliberals and the centrist stuff. So you kind of uh, pick up the New York Times and the Post and have a little cognac on the side. And say, <laughs> I'm going to get through this. How will I get through this? Oh, not no longer name my bed now. I guess let 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 let's see what's going on here, and then I try to. The right wing uh, 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 journalist as well, uh, uh, Brother Ross. You know, at the times I, I, I try to keep track of what he's up to. He's a highly yeah. intelligent brother. You know, he often wrong, but if we, he, he's got something to say. We just had him in our class. Uh, at home. Yeah, he's he's no Sean Hannity. Yeah. Oh no, no, Ross. Ross is intellectual now. Right. The same is true with Andrew. Andrew Sullivan. You know, I read Andrew Sullivan. See what he's up to. Yeah. You know, he's he's a thinker. He's a thinker. Yeah. You know, you mentioned a while back that you see these as apocalyptic days. What did you mean by that? It means that uh, things turned upside down, the end of times, the end of eras, the end of epochs, uh, the end of paradigms, the end of frameworks are being uh, manifest in a very clear way. And I think that's one of the things that Biden has an intuition about, that he that's one reason why the Biden of 1994, who could sit there on the floor of the Senate and talk about predators and they're beyond the uh, beyond you know rehabilitation and so forth, he could end up being a major force for prison reform, that he has a sense that uh, 
those old frameworks are gone, that the realities have shattered them in a fundamental way. Now, some of us saw that in the 1990s, and that's why we continue to, to make him culpable for helping create the, the circumstances that now he himself may be able to transform. And we understand his change, and I support that. But uh, but these are apocalyptic days. There's no doubt about it. This sense of, uh, of living it at the end times, as my dear brother Zizak puts it, uh, is very, very real. In terms of ecological catastrophe, nuclear catastrophes, um, the various uh, spiritual catastrophes, given the decay in our society, the moral decrepitude uh, of so much of our culture, where people are just falling in love with the hounds of hell, which are greed and hatred and hypocrisy and mendacity driven by fear and paranoia. See, that's apocalyptic. And when the hounds of hell themselves becomes hegemonic on earth, then it's hard to leave a little heaven behind that has discernible effects. And I come from a tradition that says, if the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind. Hmm. Dr. West, my final question for you is, um, I'm, I'm getting to the point, looking at the political landscape and looking at you know how slow moving the system is, even when we start inching in a better direction. I look at that and it reminds me of, you know, the brilliance that came before us when you look at the civil rights movement, for example, and how much they were able to accomplish and how they had, you know, the whole weight of the world was on their shoulders and they plowed forward and they really made some amazing strides. How would you respond to this? I think that now maybe the best path forward would involve a general strike where everybody organizes and you have some very simple demands. You could say Medicare for all, ending the wars, ending the drug war and freeing the nonviolent drug offenders, unions for everybody like the PRO Act, for example. People can debate over the specifics, but just this general idea of you have maybe four or five demands and then you do a general strike. Do you think, number one, is that a good idea? Number two, is it really ever possible or feasible we could organize to that extent? I tell you, I think that it's it's a vision that's worth taking very seriously. I mean, there's a sense in which my very, very dear brother Mordecai, Mordecai Lyons, who's founder of the Boycott Times, that was the, uh, the, the site that I decided to announce my leaving Harvard, going to Union Theological Seminary. But brother Mordecai, he works closely with Tef Poles, one of the great artists and freedom fighters of his generation and a whole wave of folk. And the reason why they called it the boycott times is because this 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 acknowledgement that ordinary people have a power and they can take back their power by means of boycotts and strikes. Because in apocalyptic times, that's the last resort. That's one reason why even the boycott of Israel is not anti-Jewish. Mm. It's trying to make sure that there's Jewish security in the world because there be there will be no Jewish security predicated on the domination of Palestinian lands and, and peoples, you see. So that the, the, the boycotts are a last resort. It's like we did with South Africa or we did in El Salvador. It's the last resort of a people who feel powerless but recognize if we continue to go in the same direction that we're going, all of us are going under. And so I like your notion of that general strike. You know, Sorrell, of course, makes much of it in his work on the myth 
of the general strike, and that's his particular conception of it. And IWW in the United States, as you know, built very much on that, Big Bill Hayward and some of the other great freedom fighters in the 19-teens. But as you can imagine, it presupposes such a high level of multi-layered and multi-leveled organization. But the vision is an important one because the last thing you ever want and this is in the words of my dear teacher, Sheldon Wolin, who was the greatest radical democratic theorist of his generation. His book, Democracy Incorporated, is a good place to start. He says, ordinary people must always feel as if there's ways of taking back the power that has been taken from them. Mm. And you have to come up with visionary analyses, strategies, and tactics to ensure that ordinary people are able to do that. And in many ways, it's but a political extension of that last line in Ralph Waldo Emerson's great essay experience, where he says the world exists for the romance of transforming genius into practical power. And we could add for the enhancement of those sly stone called everyday people. Mm-hmm. See, that's a democratic, a radical democratic sensibility that the early Ralph uh, uh, Emerson had and Wolin builds on it. And you see it in Ella Baker. Ella Baker takes it further than all of them in terms of organization and democratic forms of organization. That's why there's a sense in which we live in the age of Ella Baker when it comes to the younger generation, your generation talking about how do you organize. You don't want following the Pied Piper. You don't want professional revolutionaries who dictate to the workers what to do with Lenin. And no, no, we want democracy in the organization itself. Mm. We want the voices to be heard. You need structure, but it's a democratic structure. This is what Ella Baker was telling the great Stokely Carmichael and the great Diane Nash and the great Martin Luther King, who was over against that democratic form coming out of the black church and with a charismatic model. Uh, uh, so that th- th- this this notion of strike, boycott, coming up with ways to ensure that everyday people can, c- can, can effectively take their power back in order to do what? Not to hate, not for revenge, but for justice and justice rooted in a love. Any justice, that's only justice, soon degenerates into something less than justice. You've got to have love, care, and concern that motivates and animates your struggle for justice if it's going to be genuine, if it's going to be real, and if it's going to be long-standing. Dr. West, the last question I had for you is is a a personal one, but Look, so many people have been through hell this year. You described it as a a catastrophic year for you personally. I think that probably lands with a lot of people who have lived with a lot of turmoil this past year. You know, you, when I think of you, I always think of the amount of love that you bring to every interaction, no matter whether it's someone you really philosophically and ideologically align with or who with whom you profoundly disagree or who you think is maybe even operating in bad faith, you always seem to manage to bring that love and compassion to the table. Has there been a moment that's really challenged um, that part of you or shaken your faith? And how have you gotten through that? Mm. Well, you know, I... Uh... I have so much to fall back on, my dear sister. I think of my my mother. You know, she uh, 
like Louis Armstrong. She just had joy flowing out of her every moment of her life. It was just such a blessing to be in her presence, let alone her second son. And that joy, of course, is the fruit of love. Uh, love the real thing, not the Hollywood version of love, not the commodified versions of love, but love is this deep, steadfast commitment to the welfare of others, love as the self-emptying and the self-donating and the self-serving of others. So I've got that in my tank, my dear sister. Mm. And I got a whole lot of that in my tank. Mm. <laughs> it's like my tank is running empty. All I got to do is fall back and see mama smile and see dad's grin and see my brothers and my sisters and my other brothers and sisters who aren't tied by blood but tied by spirit. I can hit the streets and feel it. I can go to the jails and 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 and, and feel it. I feel it in the classrooms and so I I I, I haven't had any moments in which I was paralyzed. I have mm-hmm. moments in which I struggle, but that love and joy is always already there. And as you know, when I really get down and out, I just mm-hmm. turn on a little John Coltrane. <laughs> That's the medicine right giant there. Giant steps to love supreme. And he just, ascension takes place inside of my soul. Because in the end, the music, I think, is going to, it's the real love. Uh, vanguard phenomena in the species that allows us to find some joy in our grief, some strength in our grief without denying the grief. You can turn on some Beethoven too if you if you incline toward uh, 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 Europe, the, the Beethoven, the more, the dark one. We don't know what color that brother really was in terms of his thing, but most <laughs> importantly, his genius. And the same would be true for Coltrane. The same would be true for Aretha Franklin. Your generation, it would probably be, oh, D'Angelo, maybe. It's up to you all. You'd have to choose your generation to have the equivalence of that level of genius. But that, th- those are sources that keep us going when we get down and out. Because keep in mind now, your generation, boy, if, if the only citizens could vote was your generation, my dear brother Bernie would be in his second term. Mm. Very true. That hurts to hear that. That's true. That hurts. (laughs) That stings. My generation that bears the responsibility of these gangsters like Trump and company. That's my generation that produced them. You see. Dr. West. Not you all. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending so much time with us today. We're so incredibly honored and grateful for you. Yeah, this was a real honor and pleasure. No, I salute both of you. Stay strong. You're real forces for good. What a lovely, lovely man Cornell West is. I mean, he really is incredible. And you actually told me before the show that his mom just passed away. Yeah. His mom passed away. Just it last was week. Last week. Yeah. And I was like, wait, he's doing the show? And you were like, yeah. He said, I talked to him after it. And he said he's doing the show. And I was floored by that. And, I, you know, I thought your last question really captures his essence perfectly. Because you basically asked him, have you ever stumbled or or faltered with your whole unconditional love approach to life because he really does have unconditional love for people it really feels that way it really it does and his response was not really no yeah he said his tank was so full because of so many of like the blessings that he'd had in his own life and brought it back to his mom as well who clearly was unbelievably beautiful woman and profound influence on him so he makes me feel like a spoiled little bitch (laughs) you know 
Like, because I'm not nearly as appreciative as him. And, like, there's plenty of stuff I could be appreciative about. But I'm like, I just don't have... I, I think I'm naturally a reasonably happy person. But on a scale of 0 to 10, he seems like he's a 10 out of 10 all the time with his happiness level, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, and he says that joy comes from the love that he puts down in the world, that it's like a virtuous cycle, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, sometimes I, when I see him go on with like Sean Hannity or one of the other assholes at Fox, I'm sort of like, why are you doing this? You know, Actually, like, I, funny enough, I give him a total pass even when well, I see him. No, I, I mean, I get, I'm not like judging him for no, it, I but know. I'm just sort of like, yeah, no, but that's whole, his whole thing is he will literally engage. Yes. With anyone. And, and guess what? Everybody loves them. And everybody, like, you can't help but love someone who just is so filled with, like, love and kindness and compassion and understanding, um, even as it's not like he pulls punches. No, and I was going to say, he's the only lefty who's actually still invited on mainstream media. Yeah. And the only reason he is, I think, is because he everybody loves him because he kills everybody with kindness. Yeah. No, when, you, when he goes on with, like, let's say Anderson Cooper. He was just on with Morning Joe. Yeah, that's right. He just like they all just they're putting in his hands. Everybody loves him. It's right. so incredibly disarming. And yeah. I think that's like it's a life lesson. I think it's also a lesson for like the left movement writ large. Totally. That this what his way of existing right. in the world and, you know, testifying about how he sees things and his truth it's so much more effective than totally. what almost anyone else out there is doing. So I'm so guilty of the op- being the opposite of him in terms of, you know, if I, you know, I, I got my flamethrower out 24-7 when it comes to, like, mainstream media figures, mm. and I just go hard in the paint. But then, yeah, you realize, you stop and you think about it, and you're like, wait a second. If I made all the same criticisms, but I was just, like, affable and loving, maybe I would get invited on. <laughs> and maybe the message would be spread further. I really don't know. It, just, it definitely works with him. That's what ends up happening. Yeah, because he'll say the same critique. Say the I same mean, thing I would he, say, but like he I says said, it like, my dear my brother, brother, Joe Scarborough. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, in my segments, I'm like, this fucking piece of shit, stuck up, spoiled little bitch, corrupt asshole. Like, and then, you know, you're done. There's well, no... Maybe there's room for both. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. It was also really interesting to hear him talk about the Obama era and how he was how he was sort of like the the black community in particular really hated to hear. Yeah, he said those words. Yeah, the black community turned on me. Really hated to hear what he had to say. And he described that as difficult for him. I'm sure it would be. I mean, this community that you're part of, that you love so much and that you're doing everything you can to represent and fight for. And they're just, you know, completely outraged about what you have to say. But it was also interesting to hear him say that now he goes back to those same spaces, whether they're churches or communities or whatever, and hears from a lot of people that you're right. You know, we should have heard it when you were saying it, and you were you were right about a lot of this, much more so than we wanted to admit. See, now this is where the benefit of my approach kicks in because I just wouldn't have seen the criticisms of me. You just wouldn't in look, those scenarios because yeah. I wouldn't look exactly. So, but you have to be deeply introverted to want to do that. Mm. He's a very extroverted guy, yeah. So he wants that feedback. So he's out there critiquing Obama very strongly and then you know the black community turns on him and he witnessed every step of the way he witnessed what was going on he yeah so my approach is sort of like your approach i am too fragile so i just like try to shut out the criticism his approach clearly is he has this well of love that he describes right. mm-hmm. 
and this deeper sort of abiding faith in the universal principles that he is representing. And so he, I thought it was really profound what he said, like, I'm not, I'm not doing and fighting in the way that I am for anyone's love. Right. And so that's, I think how he's able, because he's able to maintain a real vulnerability in the world. Yes. Where he sees the criticism and he takes it in Mm -hmm. and he doesn't just shut himself off to it, but is still able to continue to have just as much courage to be able to go against the grain just as fiercely as he always has because he has that sort of deeper well of strength. Yeah. You know, he's a, he's the most unique mix that there is because he will give you the raw, honest truth, but then he'll also give you unconditional love. Usually when you get somebody who's willing to give you the raw, honest truth, I would put you in that category. I put me in that category. If you're, Usually that goes hand in hand without the unconditional love part. Yes. Because when you're giving the raw truth, sometimes it gets ugly, mm-hmm. it's dirty, and then, you know, you that very rarely is hand in hand with like a happy-go-lucky approach to life. Yeah. You know? It's... So he's a rare mix. I mean, I don't know if anybody else is like him in that sense. I would maybe put Nina Turner in the same That's a great point. She's yeah. another mm-hmm. person that comes to mind when I think of someone who has that like... Fierce tells the whole entire truth. But then um, is happy-go-lucky. But has right. has the unconditional love yeah. that goes with it. So um, just a, a real honor to get to speak with him and hear his thoughts on the world. Interesting also to hear him talk about how he really sort of senses in his bones in a spiritual way that this these are apocalyptic days yeah. in his way, in that way. And, you know, I when I asked the question about what, what do you mean by that, I thought he would go specifically to the climate crisis and mm-hmm. ecological disaster. And he did talk about that, but it wasn't just that that he talked it's about. Everything. It was everything. Yeah. It was the sense that these structures and systems that have been in place for the past number of decades have sort of run their course. And yet we don't know what what comes next. It was interesting for him to feel like Joe Biden had some sense of that. I'm not sure if I agree with that or not, but it does make me feel a little bit hopeful that at least Dr. Cornell West thinks that. Yeah, uh, I don't think Joe Biden sees anything. I think he barely saw the podium he was speaking at last night, if I'm being honest with you. Yeah, I don't know. But that that apocalyptic sense, I think, is something that a lot of people, including myself, were feeling on a base level. You know, there's very primitive visceral level of like something's off. Something's not right. Yeah. You know, and uh, it is it's it's a mix of things. You could say it's the climate crisis. It's it's COVID-19. It's the implosion of the economy. But also, like he said, it's a time where he said something along the lines of like the old definitions and old framings are falling apart and they don't like they're going to cease to be relevant. Yeah. And that struck me as really profound, too, because it's like. Yeah, we don't we nobody really knows what's coming next, but also the place we're in right now is not very easily definable. We're in this weird place right now where we're still arguably in the neoliberal era, but we're like sort of inching out of the neoliberal era in some sense because there's been a whole bunch of giant spending bills to keep this economy together with duct tape and bubblegum. And we're in a weird place socially because everybody's at each other's throats and partisanship and tribalism is higher than it's ever been. And so there's just a giant mix of things that seem really unstable. And so the best way to describe it is, is how he described it. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an in-between. It's overwhelming. It's an in-between time where 
basically the the failures and the the rot and the corroded nature of those systems and institutions has been laid bare. I mean, there's almost no one who would disagree with that. And yet you have people who had power in those old institutions. They're hanging on for dear life. Right. Trying so to, not ready for the try moment. And right. duct tape them together. And like, maybe we can just get another decade out of these institutions so that I can suck it, you know, suck everything dry as much as I possibly can for these last few. <laughs> you didn't like that. Metaphor. That framing is going <laughs> to that's going to be clipped out on its own. And you're in a whole bunch of trouble. You can't have crystal ball talking about sucking people dry. Fuck <laughs> out of here. You hadn't made a big deal of it. No one. Uh, well, well, it was pretty anyway, fucking obvious. I was <laughs> trying to make a serious point here. Which sorry. Is that <laughs> My child. Brain people who have. Have power are going to try to hold on to it and duct tape it together by whatever means necessary. And there isn't a lot of clear direction of a new thing to be born. So you're in this in-between space. And I think people experience that as a really kind of existential crisis on a lot of levels. And then you also do have like the very clear ecological and climate crisis yeah. that we're facing down as well. You like my duct tape framing, huh? I did like, like that. Yeah. yeah, I picked that up. Yeah, I used it twice after I used it. So I was like, oh, I think I struck a nerve with the duct tape thing. Yeah, I'll throw bubble gum in there, too. It really rounds it out the whole point. All right, duct I'll work. Tape. I'll workshop that for next time. Duct tape and bubble gum. Anyway, um, guys, we love you. Uh, if you are not paying $5 a month to get the video a day early on Substack, I don't know what's wrong with you. It's At this point, you're just being ridiculous. Um <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening on audio, we still love you, just not as much as the people who pay the five dollars. I mean, we Got, we okay. confessed up front we don't have the unconditional love of Cornell West, so it that's just true. Is what it is. Listen, I, the most embarrassing fact of all time, and it's not even debatable: Barry Weiss is ahead of us in Substack. <sighs> you don't understand. That keeps me up at night. I'm not big on, you know, dick measuring contests. I'm not like, what are my numbers? I don't care about that 24-7. But the fact of the matter is, Barry Weiss being ahead of us on Substack is basically a war crime. Mm. And uh, somebody should be in the Hague as a result of it. So, listen, help brother and sister out. Go to Substack. Pay the $5 a month. Get the video of the show. Get it a day early. And for the love of God, get us in front of Barry Weiss. We need to, how far, how far off are we? Do you have the numbers in front of you right now? It's okay if it's too difficult to get. It's really not that big of a deal. I can get it. I can get it. Um, Well, we don't know exactly the numbers. Right. We don't know exactly the numbers, but what number is she? We're at 14. So we're number 10. We're number 14 in news and politics. Barry Weiss is number 10. If you guys can't get us in front of Barry Weiss... We might have to wrap this whole bitch up. Like, it might be a wrap. It's really unacceptable. I might, I might have to go find another job. We are beating uh, Mark Halperin, so at least I don't have to, yeah, like, instantly... Yeah, but that guy, like, diddled 80 belt. women, and, you know, he's also <laughs> We're also with... beating Dan Pfeiffer, so that's good, too. Uh, yeah, those guys are terrible, though. I mean, <laughs> what what was the first one you said again? Um, Halperin, Halperin. He's yeah, also, Halperin. on top of being, like, a fucking perv and a creep, he also, along with Wolf Blitzer, is the most boring man on the planet. So if we weren't beating him, I would we curl would up in the fetal position on the floor and cry right pack now. Up shop. Yeah, That'd but the Barry Weiss thing, my ego's taking a Bad giant enough. hit and it will never recover. <laughs> so anyway, subscribe on Substack so I don't kill myself. Um, anyway, love you guys, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs>